Obadiah is found among the minor prophets towards the end of your Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. This doesn't have anything to do with the text, but Obadiah is a family name in my family. So going back more generations than we can remember at the moment when I asked my dad, there is a Robert Obadiah Winston. No, there's a Obadiah Right, he's watching too, so I'm totally getting this wrong. But there's, I should have wrote it down. But there is a, there's an Obadiah Winston. I think that's how it works. It might be Obadiah Robert. But then I know this one. I got this one right. My great-grandfather is Robert Obadiah Wellens Winston. So I got two Obadiahs in there. Now, now follow it. Then his children, my grandfather and father, are Robert Nathaniel. And then they gave me the name Richard Wellens. So, Wellens from the ancestor who also had the name Obadiah. And then Benjamin is Benjamin Robert Winston, after his father, grandfather, and also his grandmother's middle name was Robert. So, there you go. That's not going to help you understand this book of the Bible at all, <laughs> but Obadiah is a family name for what it's worth. So, with God's word open in front of us, let me read this book. It's only one chapter. So let me read the word of the Lord, the book of Obadiah, verses 1 to 21. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, who, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, team men, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster." You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a flame, and Joseph a flame, and Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, 
And people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen for the reading of God's word. Let me pray again for us. Father in heaven, open our eyes, we pray. Give us faith to see the message of the scriptures here, to believe it, to obey it, to submit to it, to rejoice in it. Give us understanding of this Old Testament prophecy. May it show Christ to us and how we might live in a manner that is pleasing to you. Be with our church. Thank you for providing our needs throughout this year as we finalize our budget meeting with the elders and deacons. Thank you again for your faithful care of us. We do pray the heat would be repaired tomorrow, and thank you that we have uh, the means to meet that need. So help us to trust in you for all things, to look to you for our daily bread, and thank you again for your constant kindness. So be with us now as we look to your word, and may we glorify you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book that I've read to you tonight, Obadiah, is actually the shortest Old Testament book, only 292 words in Hebrew. Nevertheless, it packs quite a punch. It has strong messages that warn us and words of grace and uh, mercy that comfort us, as we'll see this evening. Now, we are not told anything about Obadiah. We, we know more about the people whose names I quoted for you a moment ago than we do about this Obadiah. There's no background given about him in this book. All we have is his name. Now, his name means the Lord's servant, so maybe that indicates pious parents, parents who named him the Lord's servant in the hope that he would indeed grow up and serve the Lord with his life. Obviously, he did as a prophet here, but you know, Kings doesn't refer to him, the other prophets don't refer to him, and he just shows up here in this short book, and that is all we know. However, we do know something about the time when he ministered. You notice what I read there in verses 10 through 14? It sounded like they were describing destruction against Judah. Edom is told, you shouldn't have stood there aloof or helped the enemies on the day your brother Jacob was looted and destroyed and carried away. So you have a situation where the southern kingdom of Judah is being attacked. They're being sieged and eventually they are being deported. Now, the best events that match that would be the Babylonian assaults against Judah. 597 B.C., 586 was the last one. Each time Nebuchadnezzar came, he, he took some people away, and at his last visit, he destroyed the city and carried most of the exiles into Babylon. So we can date it around that time period there, the fall of the southern kingdom. And the time period then tells us what got this prophet preaching, what occasioned his message. And again, it's, it's packed into those central verses that I just read you. Obadiah addresses Edom. So not Israel, not Judah. Most of the prophets, for the most part, preach to Israel and Judah. Now at times they'll turn and address the nations, that's not uncommon. Jonah, of course, his book, he's going there to Nineveh and what have you, though Jonah, you recall, also preached within Israel. But Obadiah chooses to direct his entire prophecy towards 
Edom, a rival nation. Judah's eastern neighbor and the descendants of Esau. So you recall Jacob and Esau, the twin boys. Judah, the people of God, descend from Jacob. The Edomites descend from his twin brother, Esau. And what we read there in verses 10 through 14 was uh, the Edomites rejoicing over Judah's destruction, even helping Judah's enemies conquer her and preventing any people from escaping. And as we'll see in the prophecy, pride is identified as a main motivating factor in Edom's aggression towards Judah. Pride moved them to attack in that way, to rejoice in that way. And pride told them nothing would ever come of it. So therefore, the prophet Obadiah arises, God raises him up to denounce Edom's pride, to denounce Edom's aggression, to threaten judgment against her for her cruelty, and then in the end to present a hope of mercy for the people of God, and maybe, as we'll see, for Edom as well. So let's look at this book tonight under the theme that Obadiah presents us with, The God Who Judges Pride. And I want to develop that in three uh, sections. For what it's worth, if you want to do some of your old study in the Old Testament, I've been using a book by an author of the last name of House, and it's called Old Testament Theology. Really readable. Just kind of summary, this is what the book's all about. Here's its main themes, and then here's how it connects to other parts of the Bible. So very often, even the theme and the outline itself, I'm leaning on his work when we do these Sunday night studies and then tweaking it, changing the wording to, to fit it uh, to our study just right. But a good book worth your reading if you want to do some study yourself. But he develops the idea of Obadiah these three ways. One, Edom will be destroyed for its pride. That's the main idea in verses 1 through 9. That Edom will be destroyed for its pride. Let's talk just a minute about the background. Where did this conflict come from? Why do these Edomites hate the inhabitants of Judah so much? So if you've read the book of Genesis, if you, you heard those Sunday school stories growing up, you're familiar with the conflict between Jacob and Esau. These two brothers like to fight. They like to fight so much that they were already wrestling in the womb. Uh, my mom had two brothers. She told me one time uh, they fought so much that they actually put a hole in the wall trying to get to each other from their respective rooms because they would fight so much. I think she might have also told me her mom tried the whole, you're going to sit on the couch till you get off. That did not work with these two brothers. So brothers fight. Jacob and Esau wrestled. In the womb, and out came uh, Jacob, grasping at the heel of his brother Esau. And the, the prophecy was there, the pronouncement at his birth. You know, this is how it's going to go uh, all of their life. You know the story of how Esau came home famished, and Jacob twisted his arm into selling him his birthright. And then, of course, taking advantage of the situation when Isaac was old to trick him at his mother's instigation and secure the blessing that he had wrestled away uh, from Esau. So great conflict there. Some resolution later in their lives, but then they do, in the end, go their separate ways. And so the people groups that descend from them also go their separate ways. When Israel left Egypt during the time of the Exodus, they started traveling through the land on the way to Canaan. 
And they had to go through the land of Edom. They said, look, let us go through. We will not bother you. And Edom said, no way. And they sent out soldiers to block their way through. And so Israel had to go around. Once Israel was established in the land, David did conquer Edom. He subdued that part of the land to the Israelite kingdom. But then later, a few hundred years, Edom revolted against Judah around 850 B.C., and they broke away. So we can see why they would have been happy to see Judah destroyed, a former uh, you know, territory that had authority over them and rivalry going back uh, to the very beginning, the founding of their two kingdoms. Now look at what the Lord says to them as he threatens them with destruction for their pride. We see that they have a situation in their land and in their hearts whereby they think nothing's ever going to happen to them. So why would they go out and treat Judah so, so cruelly? Why would they act in this way? Because I don't think anything will ever come of it. They're better, and therefore their pride becomes their trust. So look at verse 3. The Lord says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, Who can bring me down? to the ground. If you were to look at the geography, the land of Edom, it's a, basically a rocky terrain. It's a rocky mountain full of caves and, and dwelling places hewn out of the rock. Now that may not sound like anywhere you want to live, but in this day and age, that was a quite secure situation. Go back into the rocks, go back into the caves there, tunnel in, build some kind of exterior defense and fortification, and it would be very hard to take the land. You've ever seen that iconic picture of the city of Petra, almost a temple-looking facade there down in the valley, probably located in the historical uh, area known as Edom. So a secure place where they believed nothing could ever hurt them. When the Lord talks about the pride of their heart, by the way, real, and, and, and who can bring me down to the ground, really similar language to other prophets. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And those, by the way, are passages that describe earthly kings, but describe them in satanic terms. In other words, the two kings described there are said to be very proud, and in being proud, they are very much like Satan, the, the, the original proud one. And so then the prophets pull back the curtains and actually start talking about the fall of Satan in those passages, because those kings are so much like them in their behavior. And so the prophet warns, he threatens them, destruction will come to you because of this pride. Not only because of their uh, pride, but also because of their cruelty. So look at verse 5, their excessive cruelty. The prophet asks, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? No one wants to be robbed. I've, I've been told, reading you know, stories of people who come home to a robbery, it's very upsetting, very shaking situation. It makes you feel very vulnerable, very exposed, very, very watched, very insecure. But if you get robbed, unless they're just excessively cruel, typically they come in and what? Take what they can get and get out. Hopefully they don't destroy your home. Hopefully they don't come when you're there. there there's no harm. Robbers can only take what they can get. They can only hold so much. And the point that Obadiah is making is when a robber comes, he comes in, he gets what he can, and he gets out of there. That's not how you acted towards Judah. 
you weren't content just to take a whack or to get a little payback. You wanted them totally destroyed. As if a robber could back up the U-Haul and just clean out your house. That's how you treated them. When grape pickers come to harvest the grapes, they're really only supposed to take what they need and they are supposed to leave a little bit for the poor. Remember that requirement in the Old Testament law? Don't cut to the corners. Leave a little bit for the needy in the land. Don't clean out the field all the way. So in Israel and in Judah, it's really just basic humanitarian treatment that you leave a little bit for the poor, not Edom. They wanted total destruction of Israel. So they're inhumane, and as strange as it sounds, there's even rules amongst robbers, all right? You know, they only take what they can get, and you broke even that rule in your excessive cruelty. Because you want to see Israel or Judah properly totally destroyed. And that's why God's going to bring judgment on them. That's why the way they have treated others will be brought back to them. Verse 7 even highlights how God will begin to ruin them. He talks there, verse 7, All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Now that's what's going on there. Why would their friends turn against them? Well, God will turn their friends against them. And this would have been significant because Edom was renowned, they were well-known, for good trading. They had a lot of confederates. So they were at a, a strategic location, crossroads, where trading went very far from their land. That was part of their economy. And God says, yeah, I'm just going to make those relationships perish because of the way you treated your brother. Now let's come into the second section there, where Edom is denounced for opposing Jerusalem. It's a similar thought, God's saying, okay, you've done wrong here. But whereas the first section said, all right, you're proud, you're going to be destroyed... Section 2, drill down a little deeper. Let's look exactly at what you did that is bringing this judgment upon you. Verse 10 simply states the threat. Edom will be destroyed, it says there, because of violence against your brother Jacob. Because of that, you'll be covered with shame and destroyed forever. So once again, the background there. Judah, the descendants of Jacob... They're being attacked by the Babylonians, carried off in exile. Which, keep in mind, by the way, God ordained. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to punish them. And yet, the way Edom treated them in that divinely ordained circumstance is condemned by God. They themselves were sinning against Judah in the violence against them. Now, what did that violence look like? Verses 11, 12, 13, 14 Spell it out. So according to verse 11, they did not prevent violence against their kinsmen. It says there in verse 11, On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, you were like one of them. You know, you didn't say, well, what did I do? I didn't participate. Well, God says you stood aloof. You saw a brother in need. Historically, they come from the same parents. They are somewhat related. You saw a brother in need. You saw someone being attacked. You saw violence against them. You stood aloof. You did nothing. You wanted it to happen. And therefore, you are, God says in verse 10, you're 11, you're like one of them. Attacker and passive, passive watcher held accountable for their actions. Verse 12. They celebrated their kinsmen's destruction. It says there in verse 12, You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people 
of Judah nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. They celebrated what happened. They wanted that payback. They wanted to see that people group go down. Those were their enemies. Those were the people that had done wrong to them. Apparently they had lost sight of what God had said uh, at Mount Sinai in another passage. You're going to be my light to the nations. You're a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They mediate between God and people. They teach the law. They announce the good news. They, they, they do the sacrifices and show God's mercy and forgiveness. And Esau there uh, did not want to see that revived, wanted to see them destroyed. Now again, eat them outside of the covenant people uh, particularly, but again, still the ancestry there. They celebrate uh, the destruction of their kinsmen. Verse 13, they looted their kinsmen. They took advantage of this distress. Verse 13, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor blow over them in their calamity, nor seize their wealth. So it is sinful, it's wrong to take advantage of that uh, rival group knocked down, say, well, I'm going to get some of this for myself. After all, maybe I deserve it. Maybe it's owed to me. It is wrong. It is sin. It's not how we treat other people and their property. In verse 14, they murdered and betrayed their kinsmen. This is kind of the big punch that you don't see coming. He says, you shouldn't wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. There they stood along the escape routes and captured people escaping, handing them over to the Babylonians, or killed them themselves. So, you know, if you thought, well, you know, the first three, okay, you know, I, I, that's kind of bad, but, you know, that's, that's not that aggressive. Well, here we go. They're just as bad as the Babylonians getting involved in the murder of their kinsmen. And so God tells them, verse 10, you'll be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. This is the judgment that will come upon you. And house, or, or another, excuse me, another study Bible or, or another source on this, book does make this statement. The Edomites were ultimately reduced by John Hercanus of the Maccabean dynasty, one of those freedom fighter groups before the time of Christ, and they lost their national existence under the Romans. So what Obadiah threatened did in time come to pass. So let's look at the third point then, the conclusion of the prophecy, where Edom's fate is declared. Is it good or bad? How's it going to go down for Edom in the very end? Often these prophets end with a note of hope. So how does Obadiah conclude his prophecy? Well, verse 15 makes a reference to, by now, the by now well-known day of the Lord. Verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Prophets often refer to this day of the Lord that's coming when God will intervene actively, directly to punish his enemies, to save his people. There are many days of the Lord. God often intervenes all leading up to a final day of the Lord. This verse may very well be referring to that final day because of the language there, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. So when you look at that kind of extensive intervention, the later verses go on to speak of Israel's deliverance. That's often looking ahead to basically the second coming of Christ when Jesus appears. 
I was in New York City one time, and we were walking on the street. We were, we were doing Christian ministry, and we met a group that was preaching and was preaching lots of denunciation and condemnation. And they said, basically, Obadiah was talking about America. Because verse 3 there says, you, uh, or verse 4, you, you soar like an eagle. You make your nest among the stars. So the eagle is an American symbol. Uh, stars on our flag. We, were, we, we had space programs. We made our way to the stars. Obadiah's not talking there about America. Obadiah there is talking about Edom. But you know what God says in verse 15? He speaks to all the nations. And he says, the day of the Lord is near. So he, he turns his guns on Edom. But like the prophets often do, then he turns to all people groups. He says, okay, look, one day God's going to hold everybody accountable. And I've given you in this prophecy, Obadiah says, an idea of the kinds of things that please God and the kinds of things that don't. So all nations need to listen to the warning that the day of the Lord is near for all nations. Now, how will Edom make out in the day of the Lord? Well, Obadiah is pretty extensive in the way he explains judgment. It doesn't look like there will be any survivors. Verse 18, Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. Now we accept what the Lord says and we believe his word. He does not at this point offer any mercy any hope of survival to Edom. Now, at the same time, though, we also compare Scripture with Scripture. And sometimes other portions of Scripture may shed light on others that are more general and add some details that, that we can fit into the picture without totally twisting everything out of proportion. So let me refer back for a moment to what we looked at last time we were together, two weeks ago, from Amos. Remember Amos 9, how it concludes with hope? It includes hope for Edom. It says, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. So when you look at Amos' prophecy, he tends to see a day when the kingdom of God comes, when David's kingdom is restored, and it once again possesses Edom. Remember, Edom broke away. But when it speaks of possessing Edom there, it's speaking of it in the same breath with nations that bear my name. So it sounds like one day Edom will be brought into the kingdom of God. They will be among those who bear the name of the Lord. So is Edom totally judged? Or is Edom saved? How do we reconcile these two pictures of Edom's future? You know, once again, I think Acts 15 is the key. Where Amos 9 is cited. And where James says, look, God is acting to call out a people for his name. God, God is gathering a people that will bear his name. And the Old Testament scriptures anticipated this, that God would one day rebuild David's fallen tabernacle so that it could possess even the very edges of mankind. So God is working now to save people from all nations, and that includes Edomites. God will rescue them. Again, 
What does Revelation say? People from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. God saves sinners from everywhere. No matter how bad, no matter how wicked, God saves those who have faith. But what if you are not reconciled to Christ? Then the prophecy speaks to you. And it warns those who do not submit to the king, those who do not join those nations that know the Lord, they will be completely destroyed. The wages of sin is death. And no one will escape the judgment of God. Christ is the only solution. So then along with that threat of judgment, the prophecy concludes then with hope, as it often does. And having condemned Edom and having spoken words against Edom, God now turns and speaks to Israel, who, remember, had been absolutely ransacked. Now, the prophets aren't afraid to tell Israel the truth they need to hear. You're a wicked nation, God says, and then you're going to be judged because you violated my covenant. You're not obeying the, the covenant you agreed to obey, and you're going to be destroyed. But now that destruction's come. And so God speaks words of mercy to them, because he loves them, and he restores them. And so in verse 20, he says things like this. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. And exiles from Judah who are in Sepharad will possess the towns in the Negev. Maybe you picked up on that language in the opening reading. You know, Israel is going to inhabit, possess, include all these different lands. These people are going to enter the people of God. In verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion and Judah there to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So once again, hope is offered to God's people in God's kingdom. They are told to look forward to the reign of God and the other nations are offered mercy if they come and submit to that reign. <clears throat> And friends, as I've tried to show from these scriptures on Sunday nights and, and, of course, on the Lord's Day morning as well, those are realities that are now being fulfilled. Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about enjoying rest in the land. It says that those Israelites who wandered through the wilderness and, and did, they rebelled at Kadesh Barnea, they couldn't go into the land. They couldn't go in and enjoy rest. They couldn't go in and enjoy the presence of God. But then, you know, the author of Hebrews says, David went on to say, you know what? There are still people today in Israel who are not enjoying the rest. So you can be in the land, and yet you don't have rest. Because they don't know God. They don't submit to God. And so he says, now, look, for you who live under the reign of Christ, you enjoy that rest. If you know the Lord, if you're reconciled to him, you are more in the land now than an unbelieving Israelite living in Palestine then. Because you have rest, spiritual rest, the presence of God, rest from your works, the accomplished salvation that you enjoy through Christ. We've highlighted often in the Old and New Testament, but especially in the New Testament, this text that speak about the kingdom of God having arrived. Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's right here. Repent and believe in order to enter it. Colossians 1 saying, you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, placed in the kingdom of the Son God loves. Matthew 16, even talking about the growth of the kingdom, hand in hand with the rule, the presence of the church. We, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, enjoy these blessings now. So what can we take away from this book? Let me give you these three applications quickly, and then we'll close. 
But it's always good to be reminded from God's word that God hates pride. And, and it can take root in any heart, believer and unbeliever alike. God hates pride. Beware of it. Put it to death. Read the scriptures to see yourself in the light of God's word. Both what you really are as a sinner, that, that will humble you. But also what you are in Christ, that will exalt you, but it will do so on the merits of another. So that we have a right view of ourselves. If we are humble, that will manifest itself in love. Particularly in love and care towards others. That's what Edom is primarily condemned for. You didn't show any mercy and love towards your brother in need. When you had opportunity to do so. A lot of needs in the world, many of which we can never even begin to meet. But Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to remind us when you come across someone in need and you can meet it, that we have that obligation there to show that humility, love, and grace. Obadiah tells us, although it's a negative example, what godliness looks like to meet the needs that are denounced here, too. Judah could have hope in the coming of God's kingdom. No matter how bad things got around them in the nations, we were just talking about this before our meeting tonight, no matter what they saw going on in the nations, the hope was in God's kingdom. And that's, we are in God's kingdom. And so we have hope that God will build his kingdom. And so we work to lay up treasures there, treasures in heaven, investing in God's kingdom. Now, what do the Edomites want? They wanted earthly treasure. They wanted earthly security. They wanted payback. They wanted revenge. May we love eternal treasures. And seek them through Christ. And third, see even the gospel here in Obadiah. A book in which brother betrays brother to death. Well, Jesus, born amongst the Jews. And ultimately betrayed by his own people. By his brothers. Killed. Why? Because he had enemies who were proud. Who had a wrong view of God's kingdom. Who had an earthly view of the kingdom of God. But now because of Jesus dying that way, we have forgiveness. And we're reconciled to God. And we have a salvation that we can celebrate and enjoy. We've done these sins, but thankfully, in God's mercy, we have forgiveness and safety. So let's give thanks for that as we close this evening.